All right. Cool. All right. So we're, we're, we're back. Um, I've been thinking a lot actually about, uh, ERAS, the electronic residency application service. Tell me more. You're familiar with that. Well, I just like, you know, there's been a lot of interesting stuff going on on Twitter about, um, how applications are going up. Uh, it's a very lucrative process for the AMC, something like a hundred million dollars. And this is a, you know, it's a nonprofit, but they're, um, I don't know what they're spending that hundred million on. So, you know, I think this is a space that's ripe for some disruption. Okay. And I think we need, we need like, I don't know know if anyone's ever made this comparison before, but we need like the Uber for residency application (laughs) services. And so I think the real problem is you go to electronic residency application service. And that's the problem, right? The interviews are all electronic now. People are applying to tons of places, tons of places. And we need to, we, people talk about application caps, talk about increasing the price per application. Uh, some people think that, you know, we just need to, the one thing that uh, is the problem with this process is that it's just not expensive enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the real issue is we need to disincentivize too many applications. And I think we just need to get rid of the electronic. I think we need to go back to paper. <laughs> so that's my disruption is it's going to be paper applications in triplicate. You have to mail them. Okay. Or hand deliver them. Maybe we can get some kind of like, we could use Uber to deliver them. There you go. Uber for, uh, but maybe it's like only like mounted Uber. Is there like an option for like, you can get like a horse drawn carriage on Uber? Well, it it would be Uber, but since we are ditching the electronic component, Mm -hmm. you would have to uh, hand deliver a message to Uber. Yeah. So that they can deliver your application. Well, you go to like Western Union, you send a telegram to Uber headquarters and then they send a guy on a horse and then he picks up your triplicate application and then you send that to a residency. And I think we can solve this. I think uh, we're going to employ a lot of people. We're going to be job creators. Uh Um, And I genuinely believe that if I pitch this with the right slide deck, I could get 10 million in startup money. Easy. I, I, I am all for this. I will, I will pump up this idea uh, and we'll see how many people we can get behind it. Yeah, and now it'd be like a really good like coda on the joke here would be like if I had a really cute, funny name. But I thought of this in the shower about six minutes ago, and so I got nothing. Should we should we talk about uh, talk about our case today? Introduce ourselves and talk about our case. Sure, let's do it. Wonderful. So I'm I am uh, William Hodges. I'm an MS4 at Rochester, uh, applying right now in vascular surgery, and I have my guest host today. You want to go ahead and introduce yourself? I am I'm screaming pectoriliqui Kalimovirus. If you look at the actual usernames, this is this is uh, Caduceus Wild. Uh, it's a, a, a podcast about uh, case reports, uh, both. Uh, fascinating and horrifying and uh, hopefully we can learn a thing or two about uh, medicine yeah let's talk about one today um this one's more in my court so hopefully this is my chance to like flex a little bit since i've been getting dunked on in toxicology and renal stuff for the last couple episodes i, I, mean, I will this is- i will have to admit i did have to go back open up my books and remind myself what a t-cell was i'd completely forgotten what is a t-cell 
I don't know. I didn't read that far. <laughs> what, um, what is your go-to immunology textbook? Uh, I remember studying the Parnums in immunology textbook back in undergrad. Uh, I don't, I don't remember what I, what I studied for in med school. I think it was just, uh, a bunch of, uh, cribbed notes from the previous class that somebody took <laughs> instead. I don't, I don't, I didn't really delve into the textbooks in med school. Oh, I'm sorry. There was one correct answer to that and it was Janeway's immunology. Um, thanks for playing. <laughs> um, all right. So the one thing is this is actually a pretty more recent case than some of the stuff we've talked about. So just to kind of cover the bases, I've researched this. I This is to the best of my knowledge. But let's just call all of this opinion. None of this is fact. Everything is alleged. Um, and hopefully that indemnifies me from anyone who's litigious. And I, re- I, I watched the BBC documentary about this. So I'm, I am on par, I think, with your, uh, your medical knowledge for this particular I, case. I did not watch it. Was it any good? It was short. Okay. That's good. Short and sweet. Tight 90 minutes. 60. Six. Wonderful. Like a, like a certain film that I just watched, Assault on, uh, Precinct 9, Division 13. That's a great movie. Yeah. We could, let's just do the podcast about that. <laughs> All right. So, it's March 13th, 2006. Eight healthy male volunteers uh, signed up for a double-blind, randomized, phase one, placebo-controlled trial of TGN-1412, uh, later dubbed uh, Theralizumab, um, by Tgenero, I believe that's how it's pronounced, immunotherapeutics. Um, okay, so what this antibody is, is a humanized, super agonist, anti-CD28 monoclonal antibody of the IgG4 kappa subclass. Um, it stimulates and expands T-cells independently of the ligation of the T-cell receptor. So, going to walk through all that. Okay. Um, agonist for super agonist versus antagonist. I don't know the difference between an agonist and a super agonist. I think it's just a really strong agonist. Obviously, agonist antagonist blocking um, the receptor versus activating the downstream pathway. Um, IgG4 is this kind of... It's it's There are multiple constant regions in antibodies. Antibodies are made by semi-stochastic combination of regions. One of them is the constant region. Um, there are different constant regions. That hit, that's how you get your IgM, IgD, IgA. They all have different functions, and there are four in humans IgG subclasses. IgG4 is kind of, was initially thought to be this really inert subclass that doesn't really do much. So you wouldn't worry about what the back end of the antibody is doing. Um, for our lay listeners, an antibody is made by a B cell in response to some kind of antigen, a toxin, a virus, a bacterial protein, and the molecule itself is shaped, shaped like a Y. And at the top of the Y are the two binding sites, and then at the back is this constant region um, that other things in the immune system can interact with. So both parts of the antibody are, are functionally useful. Um, and so IgG4 is believed to be this this part of that constant region, this version of it that's pretty much inert. So if you want to make something that just binds to something and doesn't mess around with anything else and is as like benign as possible, IgG4 is going to be your go-to. That may not actually be true now. Um, and if you ask me what IgG4 related disease is, my answer is, <laughs> but that's a thing. So that's a, a constellation of, of symptoms and pathology that involves the accumulation of IgG4. And it's, I don't know, man. 
We we are we are doing something unique in this podcast in which we are broadcasting in real time only knowledge that was available in 2006. So if anything uh, has developed <laughs> since then uh, and you want to try to hold us accountable to that, uh, you can't do it because this is state of the art in 2006. We're, our bases are covered. That's right. And the top movie in theaters right now is uh, Zack Snyder's 300. Um, and <laughs> he will go on to make, uh, I assume, just based on this one film I've seen, uh, flawless comic book movies that are universally appreciated. Um, and at no point will his career become confusing or controversial. I look forward to it. Yeah. All right. So this is a supposedly IG4, so inert, uh, supposedly inert IG4 antibody. That is an agonist of CD28. CD28 is a, a protein primarily on T cells. And what it does is it's a key regulator of activating an immune response. Um, so one of the big issues in when you're designing your immune system is you need to teach it how not to kill yourself. We don't want, we, we want a really good reactive immune system, but if it turns us into a bag of inflammation at the slightest provocation, it's useless. So one sort of ingenious mechanism that has evolved over time is the, the, is explained by the two signal hypothesis. Um, maybe three signals, depending on who you're asking. And so in this setting, you have two signals. You have signal one, which is your T cell. And this is a type of immune cell that's very good at killing virus infected cells, cancer cells. Um, and intracellular pathogens. I mean, you can, at the, at the most basic level, you can describe humoral and cell-mediated immunity with T cells doing cell-mediated immunity and humoral uh, immunity being mediated by B cells. Not 100%. Every person with an immunology PhD, like, calm down, take a deep breath. This is just <laughs> a broad, like, 1980s overview. So T cells are very good at cell-mediated immunity, meaning that the T cell goes around, it, it has receptors on its surface, it finds virally infected cells expressing viral proteins in a certain context or cancer cells expressing normal proteins or mutant proteins in an inappropriate context um, or cells infected by intracellular bacteria and the bacterial protein gets on the surface. It finds them and it, uh, it kills them. And it does this through the T-cell receptor, which just like an antibody is um, this special receptor that binds things that's sort of stochastically created so that you have this wide coverage. Um, you have a repertoire of T cells that can bind pretty much anything that's not self. Um, and so they, they, they have their specific receptor. Each, each cell lineage has its own and it binds to its target and then it gets activated. And that sounds great. But what if a T cell finds its target, just happens to have a weird receptor that's a little self reactive or whatever and, and goes off and that's bad. That would be autoimmunity. And we know autoimmunity is, uh, is obviously it's a number of conditions that are a result of autoimmunity. Um, some classic T cell mediated, uh, like the one, one that I think of is the classic T cell mediated autoimmunity is like pemphigus vulgaris is when you have your T cells activated against the proteins that hold, that hold cells together in the skin. And so you get these big belay because the skin starts, uh, splitting in half and it's a, a, a very, uncomfortable disease. Um, I'm, I'm sure those patients, uh, do not appreciate that. So that's, that's how, so we have the signal one and you want to avoid situations like pemphigus where you get autoimmunity and autoreactivity. So then you have signal two, which is that basically if a T cell gets signal one, recognizes its target, what do you think happens to it, Dr. Peck? Uh, I would say it would want to divide and conquer. You would have more, more of those T cells activated and they'll, they'll try to mount an immune response. It's exactly right. So that's what we want to happen. So if we want to gatekeep that, we can have the signal two where you're required to have signal two before the cell is fully activated. 
So basically, if you give a T-cell signal one alone, meaning that its T-cell receptor binds its target and nothing else happens, there's no inflammation going on, there's no signal two, which is going to be the ligand for CD28, which is molecules called CD80, CD86. Um, But basically, if that's not around, the T-cell, the the average naive T-cell is programmed to die. That's it. If your T-cell gets activated in the wrong context, it dies. That's the safety mechanism. So... We have this built-in mechanism where you need both signal one and signal two. You need activated other types of cells like macrophages, antigen-presenting cells like dendritic cells that go around, gobble things up, show things to the T cells um, that are inflammatory or dangerous. Um, You need that signal two around to get a full immune response. So if you take signal two and make an agonist antibody against it and infuse it into a person, you are theoretically sort of non-specifically activating all of their T cells, right? That, That sounds... Bad. Doesn't that sound bad? I am I am questioning why we would want to do that in any circumstance. Yes. Why why do we make a drug for this? Well, because like all things in immunology, it's never quite that simple. <laughs> um C28 is not evenly expressed on all types of T cells. And in fact, it seems in humans that specifically the group of T cells called regulatory T cells, that in general, when they get activated, what they actually do is they tamp down inflammation and infection. See, we have all these little uh, sort of safety nets in our immune system. It's very cleverly designed. And so these regulatory T cells actually preferentially get activated uh, in animal models with this type of uh, stimulation. And so in theory, this would actually be a really good drug for autoimmunity. So this would be if I uh, if if I would just try to try to put my my stupid uh, kidney brain uh, understanding of this, mm-hmm. this would be a way to basically tone down the immune response like steroids, but without any of the adverse effects of steroids, any of the non-immunologic effects of steroids. So you don't have the you know the skin thinning or the the osteodystrophy. Uh, bone problems and and everything else that you get. That's absolutely right. And I should have thought you're a kidney person. All you know is steroids and tacrolimus. <laughs> tacrolimus, tacrolimus. How do you pronounce it? I say tacrolimus, or actually, what I really say is just tacro. Tacro, not tac. Yeah. Weird. I wonder <laughs> if this is like a this is like a, like feeder roads. <laughs> it's like a, a regional thing. Tac versus tacro. All right. Um, Okay, so, you know, they invent, they had this antibody. They found that actually it's, even though it's a super agonist of CD28, it's actually immunosuppressive. And so we're going to get this into clinical trials for autoimmune diseases with a specific target of looking at rheumatoid arthritis, um, where I don't, I don't recall exactly what the animal models are that suggested that this would be uh, effective. Some of the biomarkers of RA improved um, in, in animal models of this disease using this, this antibody. So, of course, we need to have our phase one trial. Um, Dr. Peck, can you inform us about briefly about phase one, phase two, phase three trials? So, uh, when, you're, when you're starting human trials, uh, the very first introduction of a drug into a person is not for any curative or treatment purposes. It is solely to figure out, will this cause basically undue harm? What, what are the safety margins for this medication? And you can imagine in, in these types of trials for phase one, you would start with fairly low doses and go up from there just to watch their response. And then in phase two, you, you now bring in people who suffer from the condition that you are uh, trying to, to treat and you figure out, you know, what the proper dosing would be. 
And then phase three, I believe, is just uh, longer term monitoring for any adverse effects in in the treatment based dosing and, and regimens. Is that correct? Yep, that's absolutely absolutely right to my understanding. Um, and so to emphasize, this is a phase one trial. We have eight uh, participants, um, completely healthy. The goal here is to just make sure that the side effect profile is tolerable, that, you know, before you put this in anyone who's sick and already vulnerable, you want to make sure that it's okay in healthy people. And so two patients are going to get controls and six patients here are going to get um, the actual uh, antibody. So these are healthy men, age 19 to 34. They were each paid 2,000 pounds, which in 2006, I'm guessing is like four grand, maybe less, maybe like three grand um, in US dollars. Um, And they were given one five hundredth of the highest dose tolerated in uh, the, the large animal model they used, which I believe was a type of macaque. And so six patients treated, two with the um, with the placebo. Within the next 24 hours, all six of those patients who got the actual drug ended up in the ICU. And so this is a story of how that, what happened and what changed as a result of this sentinel event. I think most anyone involved in clinical trials has heard of this story. So it's 8 a.m., Day one, each volunteer received an intravenous infusion. Within 10 minutes, all six um, patients getting the actual drug had uh, received it. It was infused quickly, over three to six minutes. The six volunteers who got the drug received 0.1 milligrams of theralizumab, or TGN-1412, per kilogram of body weight, infused at a rate of two milligrams per minute, and then uh, normal saline was used as the control. Everything is fine for the first 50 minutes. But at 50 minutes after the first infusion, the first patient felt burning all over. He removed his shirt, he felt so hot. And then a series of adverse events began in the treatment group, starting with severe headache in five out of six patients. They were restless, they had nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Five of the subjects had short amnestic episodes, so altered mental status. Uh, notable erythema and uh, peripheral vasodilation and rigors, so like a, a you know almost not, not necessarily anaphylactoid, but uh, definitely an immune-mediated inflammatory response. They became hypotensive and tachycardic. Temperatures ranged 39.5 to 40 degrees centigrade. Unfortunately, it's impossible to figure out what that is in Fahrenheit. You can't con- you know <laughs> you can't convert between those two units. Um, just we'll never know. Uh, you know, just just it's apples and oranges. Um, so the first thing that happens is all the patients start to get fluids because fluids are the reset button of medicine, mm-hmm. right? You call tech support. What is the first thing to tell you to do? Uh, give fluids. Turn it off and on. But effectively, a liter, a, a bolus of uh, LR in this case, because, you know, what's potassium? Some of these patients got up to four liters. As a fluid specialist, is four liters a lot? It would be in someone who has like a, a lot of you know, comorbidities. Maybe they have some heart problems. If they're a, a kidney patient, you definitely don't want to go mucking around. But I, I would stress the point that these are very young, not very young, but like young adult males who are, they have no comorbidities, no medical history. Four liters should easily be tolerable in, in this patient population. So yeah, it, it, it's kind of uh, aggressive, uh, but it's it's not something that you would expect really problems to emerge from, especially just given their background. Yeah, 
yeah. So um, I guess the meme of is homeostasis a joke to you comes in here because if, as long as they have function kidneys, four liters, yeah, sure, they can tolerate them. I mean, they're going to pee a lot, but that's fine. They got fluids coming out anywhere, uh, everywhere else with the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, so this is, you know, if, if you think it's anaphylaxis, this is the kind of thing where you're going to go for the, you know, you go go to your anaphylaxis protocol, intramuscular epinephrine, all that good stuff. But this is, uh, this is starting to look, and we'll see, this is starting to look like cytokine storm, um, which is... A very so first off, it sounds cool when you say cytokine storm, and please to our editor, which is also Dr. Pector Reliqui, um, a sweet guitar riff. The first time I say cytokine storm, please. Um, that's the name of my band. Um, this is, that's kind of an umbrella term um, for basically a massive inflammatory response it could be caused by a bunch of things non-specific immune activation being one of them um tumor lysis can do this uh lots of you know massive immune activation that is specific can happen so um it's, it's obviously it, it was in the news a lot in the early days of um the pandemic because that was sort of the the cause of decompensation of of some very sick sick patients was really that they were you know it was both decrease in lung function and sort of massive cytokine storm causing all sorts of organ dysfunction so we have these patients are all getting very sick. So, so the empiric treatment that they started with was, of course, we think this is an immune problem. So let's tamp down the immune system. So 200 milligrams total of hydrocortisone. Um, I don't remember like steroid conversions. Do you have that in your head? Like how much solumedrol is that? So hi- hydrocortisone, 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone, like it's a, it's a good burst but uh when you talk about like stress dose steroids hydrocortisone would be something you'd give like 50 over every eight hours or so so it's wow. it's a good amount but it's uh in, in this situation if you're thinking oh they they're they either have you know sepsis or they have uh, uh circulatory shock or something like that you you're not really adding it it's more like you think their body is not really mounting an appropriate response so you're supplementing it in, th- okay. in this case 200 is a, a a good good joke good uh good dose but uh, at the same time you know you try to put yourself in the shoes of the of the doctors in this situation where they you know one at this point the icu docs are coming in and taking over they have no idea what this trial is about they, they, they were, they were brought over by the, one of the investigators is like, Hey, we got six really sick people here. Can you help us out? And their thought process is, okay, well, this looks like, uh, you know, sepsis or this looks like, you know, uh, a you know, massive inflammatory response. How do we know this is a adverse effect of this drug you're just now telling me about? Or is it possible that this could be? contamination is this is there is there a contaminant or an adulterant in in the drug what if we just inoculated all six of these people with a massive dose of pathogen if we give steroids we could just make everything worse yeah it's an excellent point i think um you know i think we're i'm anchored a little bit from having read the whole thing but yeah it, let's take it from their perspective they've done a bunch of animal trials they've never seen anything like this occur in their animal trials um all six patients had it at once. It's with this one batch of drug. Yeah, I think a, a reasonable thought is more than more than this is. Oh, this is a property of the drug, and all these patients are having these awful side effects. Um, some something was you know there's some contaminant in the manufacturing is probably is pretty reasonable or sabotage. Oh no, this is this is a major pharmaceutical company. We we've all watched The Fugitive uh, recently. <laughs> 
We, you we know how these you things the samples. <laughs> also, you could have Jurassic. <laughs> um, yeah, when the H and E comes on screen in that movie, I I paused it. I made <laughs> I made whoever was watching it and be like, "Hey, I want you to know that that's a normal looking liver." <laughs> Although, actually, the sinusoids are a little dilated. Like, I'm not convinced. If only you were around in 1993 to see it in theaters, so you could clap along with the rest of the audience when the H and E comes on screen. Do you know who that pathologist is in that movie? Not not Dr. Nichols, the one who um the one who helps him read the, the samples. It's what's her name? It's uh from Glee, right? Yes, it's Jane Lynch. Yes. It's uh it's Jane Lynch. Wow, is is this what our is this what this podcast is? Is like we talk about a thing and then we just make references to like 80s and 90s movies? Yes. Wow, we're going to cultivate a very specific very annoying audience. <laughs> All right. Um so they got they got uh steroids Rather, maybe not for uh, immunosuppression, but f- to replace for adrenal insufficiency in the setting of this uh, stressor. Um, 10 milligrams of chlorpheniramine. Is that an, that's a an de- antihistamine? Antihistamine. Okay. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a British antihistamine. Bennett. Well, yeah. Across the pond, they, they, that's a Harry Potter antihistamine. <laughs> um, okay. One gram of acetaminophen. I love that. There's like, here's, have two extra strength Tylenol while you're like, you know, crumping out. Four to eight milligrams of uh, Odansetron, good old Zofran, um, and half to three milligrams of uh, Metaraminol, which I'm not familiar with what that is. That, that's a made-up drug. I don't know what that is. Okay. No, it's impossible to Google. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not looking it up. And and the other big uh, thing is, so right now we're in this like hospital that's been rented out by um, uh, a company that uh, runs clinical trials for – like it's like basically contracted out to run the actual trial. Um, so there's no stat labs right now. So the first lab results aren't coming back for eight hours while these patients are, are getting sick. So, you know, I don't even think maybe they got a finger stick glucose. I have no idea. But other than that, like nothing's coming back. This is not like, you know, your ED where it's like, oh, CBC's back in 15 minutes. Oh my God. Uh, so they're going to have to rely on their physical exam and clinical acumen. Oh man. All you need is a good physical exam. That's what, <laughs> is that what your, uh, your dad who paid 600 for med school would say? <laughs> We don't need an echo. He paid $600 to learn how to percuss. Yeah, there you go. Uh, All right. So that's 50 minutes our first patient gets starts to feel ill. We're now at 300 minutes after the first infusion. Patient one has signs of respiratory failures. To Kipnik, his PaO2 is 52. So, you know, Paul, what is that, an O2 sad of like 60? I don't know how to do that conversion, (laughs) but that's low. It's not good. on room air, on room air, that's like low. Uh, it, it did respond to supplemental oxygen. Chest x-ray revealed pulmonary infiltrates bilaterally. These are not, you know, these are findings that are not consistent with the expected response of a, a young man um, who's only received four liters. So one concern is, right, they pumped a bunch of fluid into these guys because they're so hypotensive. And, you know, you worry about fluid overload. But th- this shouldn't cause, you know, I'm not worried about uh, volume overload and pulmonary edema secondary to that. Uh, in a healthy 19 to 34 year old, you know, and they ruled out, you know, they're the, what else is going on in the lungs? There's no laryngeal edema. There's no bronchospasm. I mean, this looks like um, some other kind of infiltrate. After an initial recovery, patient six became hypotensive. Um, and we'll talk about patient five and six sort of had the the roughest course. We'll talk a little bit more about them. Um, became hypotensive, blood pressure 65 over 40. Uh, 12 is now 12 hours after the infusion uh, is, has metabolic acidosis, uh, respiratory distress and hypoxic. Um, and no longer is, is supplemental oxygen on its own administered by face back, uh, face mask cutting it. Uh, this patient is, is 
requiring uh, additional care, ultimately undergoes intubation and mechanical vent- ventilation and is admitted to the ICU. Um, and of note, uh, the coags are abnormal at this time. So those patients PT and PTT, one of them was abnormal. Because patient six decompensated and everyone else seems to kind of be going on the same trend, all six of them are admitted to the ICU sort of preemptively. Can we so, pause? Can we pause yeah. here and and just sure. like again trying to to see things from the point of view of the people who are there? This is all over the course of just a couple of hours. Imagine that you are patient seven or patient eight. You're all in the same room, and you're seeing this unfold. These people were perfectly normal that morning and just started to rapidly deteriorate, and you don't know. If you got it or not, and you're just wondering, is that going to happen to me? Just imagine how terrifying that must have been. You know, obviously more terrifying to be the person who's actually sick, but still that uncertainty had to be just mind wracking and completely nervous and anxious that entire time. And to, to kind of skip ahead there after the, the other six are sent to the ICU and these people are found to, you know, have gotten the, the placebo. They just told him, yeah, you can go home now. <laughs> you just watch, you just watch six people. Like <laughs> you're not a medical person. You're like a healthy person. It's like, oh man, I could use this money to like pay for school. And now you're like, you know, you just gone through that. You, I can't imagine there's not a little bit of like, traumatic stress response there do you do you Um, ask for the the two thousand pounds right then and there or is it (laughs) i'm never coming back am i is this gonna be in my mailbox when when should i expect this here you can cut this one but you know this is like as scary as being the next guy to go to the um havana hotel room with the microwave (laughs) i don't know i don't know if that needs to be cut or not we'll probably cut it all right that's probably safe just just in case that turns out to be like you know really (laughs) insensitive let's cut that or just bleep it i don't know (laughs) yeah um, all right. So, yeah. And so, I mean, I also imagine to be, imagine being the patients who know they got it, who are still feeling crappy, but aren't on a vent like sixes and knowing that like, oh, I'm going to the ICU. Um, also pretty wild to get six ICU beds on short notice. Yeah. Not happening these days. So 16 to 20 hours now after the first infusion, the patients are having further signs of respiratory deterioration. They're tachypnic. They're using accessory muscles. They can't speak full sentences. They all have bilateral pulmonary infiltrates on chest radiography. Um, it's starting to look like maybe an, an uh, ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is kind of a, I don't know, is it a clinical syndrome? It's a, it's a, it's a, a end pathway for some kind of diffuse lung injury secondary to some other insult in this setting. Maybe, um, it, you know, in retrospect, we learned that it's it's due to the cytokine storm, the systemic inflammatory response causing, you know, sort of massive end organ damage. So this this may be like a, a technically incorrect uh, explanation for it, which is, is which is what this podcast is all about. Technically incorrect. It's what we strive for. But fascinating still to think about. But uh, the, the kind of way I think about ARDS is uh, to compare it to, say, lobar pneumonia. With lobar pneumonia, you have an infection in a certain isolated area of the lung, and in that infection, you have your bacteria, you have your immune cells, you have all of these uh, immunomodulating, mediator, blah, 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 molecules, inflammatory markers, blah, blah, blah. You get just that uh, kind of leaky capillaries, and everything kind of turns into to gunk, and that whole area of the lung is just no good. So what is the what is the circulatory response to that? 
why send good blood to bad ventilation? Let's just kind of clamp down those capillaries and, and just shunt the blood everywhere else. Well, ARDS is as if that whole process is taking place at every part of the lungs, which is just an extraordinarily bad state of affairs and, and requires quite a bit of tightrope walking in terms of how you would even ventilate a, a patient like that because it's just you got leaky capillaries everywhere got terrible blood flow to the lungs uh, all sorts of VQ mismatch like just all over the place and they're eventually going to need ventilatory supports and it's been like the big thing for the past two decades to figure out exactly what ventilatory strategies to use uh, to treat these patients because you know the old school way of ventilating someone was just give them lots of air lots of it and you wound up with popped lungs that way and so with with uh, ARDS or ARDSnet is the, the protocol for it there's the kind of emphasis has been ventilate as, as well you can but oxygenation is really the important key here uh, you don't want to overextend uh, the, the lungs uh, so use ventilatory protective strategies with that which is usually you know lower tidal volumes uh, than than uh, normal and higher peep um, for uh, that positive end expiratory pressure uh, to kind of get the oxygen in and you just kind of tolerate, you know, not being able to ventilate, not being able to remove the carbon dioxide. It's a bad state of affairs. It's very complicated. It's worse than pneumonia. Uh, people have it have a hard time uh, surviving, but it is possible. Does ACMO exist in 2006? I'm sure. Okay. Did, it, did it exist in that hospital? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so much like uh, Tom Hardy in the film Venom and Venom 2, the sequel, uh, Let There Be Carnage, the fundamental problem here is the lungs are filled with goop. <laughs> All right. So now, wait, pay, you're going to love this part. Pay attention. This is like, this is for you, Dr. Peck. There was evidence of substantial renal impairment. Oh, my God. And DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is effectively when you have uncontrolled clotting going off all around the small vessels in the body uh, that ultimately consumes all of your clotting factors so you now both have clots everywhere and also you're prone to new bleeds because you have no more platelets and uh, clotting factors to use up it's a very it requires a lot of supportive care it's a very serious condition so these patients have renal impairment dic um do you think the d-dimer was positive in these patients <laughs> absolutely yes, it was absolutely high d-dimers um uh they're thrombocytopenic they also had severe lymphopenia and monocytopenia. And this is kind of evidence that, um, you know, th th that cytokine storm is happening. It's, it's common to basically have, you know, rather than have these, um, you know, you'd think, oh, the immune system's ramped up. This is like, I'm going to have a lymphocytosis, like when I'm septic. Um, but sometimes in settings of severe inflammation, you actually have lymphopenia. Why? Um, a lot of reasons. You have margination, right? This, the white cells are going into the tissues and causing problems. And so they're not floating around in the blood when you draw the blood. Um, or also you just kind of have nonspecific uh, death because, you know, inflammation is good for T cells to kind of get them activated and going, but also too much inflammation makes them die because, again, that's a protective mechanism against uncontrolled autoimmunity. Blood smears, this is for me because I love this stuff. Blood smears uh, showed toxic granulation with Dole's bodies. I think that's how you pronounce it. Maybe Dole's. It's got an umlaut. And dysplastic appearance of the neutrophils with pseudopelgerhuite anomaly. Oh, that's when the neutrophil no, nuclei... I, I, I remember none of those words uh, from the time I took my two weeks of immunology in med school. 
uh, those all went away. So you are going to have to explain to me what those mean. Yeah, so um, neutrophils on blood smear are one of my favorite cells because they look pretty. The nuclei have different shapes. The granules um, have different colors and shapes. And so when you start uh, having a systemic inflammatory response, one of the things the body does is start kicking in more immature neutrophils out of the bone marrow. Um, they start, uh, you know, just, we need neutrophils. We need to get rid of whatever is causing this insult. Let's start circulating more. So just kick them out of the marrow even before they're fully cooked. Um, that's where you get your band forms, things like that. And so one thing you can also observe is that the granules aren't quite right because neutrophils have a, a distinct pattern of um, sort of granulation as they develop and then finally have the appropriate granules, which I believe are tertiary granules at the end. Um, and so toxic granulation, I believe, is when you have inappropriate types of granules. You don't just have the, the specific uh, tertiary granules. Gun to my head, I still can't really, like, if you put two pictures next to me, I can't tell you which one is the toxic <laughs> granulation. Um, and then the the pelger, uh, the pelger nuclei is when you have a neutrophil that specifically, so usually you have these, like, polymorphonuclear kind of multi-lobed, like, weird U-shaped things. You get this consistent pattern of the nuclei look more like um, little spectacles where it's, like, two circles and a thin line connecting them that you would like the like the the pants nez glasses oh yeah the sunglass neutrophils well no i feel like sunglasses when people say sunglasses i feel like that's like eos eosinophils i feel like have the sunglasses i don't know oh well yeah the point is it's like it, they look like the pants pants nez you have to be very nasal <laughs> i can't pants nez um glasses um that just sort of sit on your nose and so that's what that looks like and that's indicative of oh <laughs> um, all right, so... But worth noting. Yeah. We're in the ICU. Four out of six of our patients are on continuous positive airway pressure, and two of them, uh, two patients who are doing a bit worse, are on the vent with 15 to 20 centimeters of PEEP. How much... Is that a lot of PEEP? That's a good amount of PEEP. That's a good amount of PEEP. Yeah. Uh, um, I will I will also note, uh, it doesn't really mention this in the article, but on the, the documentary, uh, they also mentioned that at the time... They did not have enough uh, continuous renal replacement therapy machines available for these six brand new ICU level patients, all with signs of kidney failure. So I don't they don't really mention how they worked that out. And, you know, maybe they did some finagling with it. But that's another you know concern in these acute settings when you have patients in shock and, and acute renal failure. You want to get them on CRT um, relatively quickly. Uh, but that can only be accomplished if they actually have the machines. So another another challenge for the intensivist on this particular case. Every hospital should have 15 lumen central line catheter things um, with a CRT, CRT for every bed. It should just already be in the room. That's right. You walk in, the first thing they do is cannulate you for CRT. And it's built into the wall. There you go. <laughs> It's one big machine in the basement, <laughs> and everybody's blood goes into the wall. Actually, that'd be really cool. Yeah. That's what happens at the Cosmic Horror Hospital. <laughs> All right. So these patients also got methylpred or solumedrol. This is basically per gram the most potent steroid. Massive uh, dose. Yeah. They got one gram times three. Really just at this point, we've decided this is cytokine storm, and we need to tamp down the immune system as hard as possible. So... Patients are in the ICU. They're in here for a couple days. They're starting to stabilize. Basically, at this point, we the ICU team is working closely with the investigators, and um, and you know we're thinking about what are the expected effects of this immunotherapy. 
Empirically, we're going to treat these patients with an anti-interleukin-2 receptor antagonist antibody, uh, diclizumab, that's got a number of uses. It's still in use today. So, right, like uh, IL-2 is a potent cytokine. It's uh, critical for T-cell expansion. And so we really want to just shut things down. So we're not going to just target the T-cells themselves with steroids and things like that. We're also going to start using antibodies that bind up the factors that T-cells secrete um, and other cells secrete to activate them. We're going to bind them up and keep them from doing anything. So this is significant immunosuppression. They were treated until three days without, uh, uh, at this point, some of them had lymphocytosis, lymphocytosis, not lymphopenia. So they were treated until three days without lymphocytosis. Um, all six patients had uh, oliguria, metabolic acidosis, increase in creatinine levels. They were getting uh, CRRT within 36 hours um, after all the stuff started at one liter per hour, but subsequently increased to four liters per hour. So as someone who's routinely getting woken up um, out of bed for CRRT stuff, is four liters a lot? Uh, yeah, I mean the the way we do it, and I'm I'm assuming you're you're talking about the dialysate flow um, level. I have I have no idea. Okay, yeah, yeah. So there's uh, the blood flow, and then there's the dialysate flow, and they you know run opposite directions uh, to each other. So blood flow on CRRT is usually around like uh, 200 milliliters, uh, 250 milliliters a minute, and then your dialysate flow uh, is. You know, adjusted weight base should be around 25 uh, mils per kg uh, per hour. So, you know, one liter is on the lower side, four liters on the higher side. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what Average human has like what? How many liters of blood? Eight liters? <laughs> uh, I don't remember. Yeah, something like that. We should know this. Yeah, I should. It's <laughs> really bad. I'm going to cut this. <laughs> I mean, you just like, that's how dialysis works. Like, you take all the blood out. <laughs> they look they look like the guy at the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade who like chose poorly. Yeah. Um and then and then you put it all back in yeah. after you clean it. Yep. That's how it works. Yep. Um so all right, so these patients they they require multiple transfusions. They're they're in DIC, right? So they're gonna need platelets, um, they need fresh frozen plasma, red blood, some of them. So they're getting lots of blood products. But they, these patients all do stabilize. Over the next thirty days, uh, sort of these patients have a number of symptoms. A lot of them had aphasia, and specifically, they had trouble with names, which I think is so interesting to have a specific, like, higher-function neurological impact of this drug. Like, that's so wild. So, I've made a lot of jokes about how it's been over 4.5 hours, so I'm out of the window for interest in neurology, but (laughs) this is really good. That's going to get me in so much trouble. (laughs) That's fine. They're doing a trial now to find out if 24 hours of interest of neurology is okay. (laughs) Um, yeah, that's wild. Uh, headaches. A lot of them had a desquamating rash, which again, this is like all consistent with this kind of like, anytime you just have this crazy immune response. Hyperalgesia, of course, numbness. Sometime after, it's unclear to me how long, but within 30 days or after that 30 days, there is one patient who does end up losing some fingers, unfortunately. It's it's permanently, you know, just, I, I, my, my guess is it's both a combination of the actual effect of the drug itself and probably the high, uh, the pressors that were being pumped into this person to keep their blood pressure high. The article mentions that uh, the the uh, digital ischemia seemed to be unrelated to uh, the changing doses of the vasopressors That's that he right, was on. Yeah. But you know who who knows? Uh, he might have required more vasopressor therapy. That's a, that's a known risk. Uh, where you just, you clamp down on those most peripheral of blood vessels and you just unfortunately don't get the blood, uh, to the very distal tips. So he lost a couple of fingertips and he lost all of his toes and part of his foot. Um, poor guy. 
poor, poor guy. He he ended up getting the largest settlement, I think, uh, out of all of them. Oh, yeah. If you happen to – I actually didn't follow up on the actual um, legal part of this. I followed up on sort of what the regulatory part of this was. But if you have, you can speak to that at all at the end, let me let me know. Sure. Um, so, okay. So, you know, we, we figured out this is basically cytokine storm. Looking at samples from the patients uh, sort of uh, retrospectively, they saw a dramatic increase in the level of uh, TNF-alpha or tumor necrosis factor alpha. Um, within an hour of the first infusion. So like they've been drawing samples this whole time. They just didn't get the results back in time. Then sort of that followed a characteristic pattern of interleukin-2 and interleukin-6, as well as interleukin-10. Interleukin-10 actually is generally appreciated to be sort of more immunosuppressive. So, you know, the body recognizes that things are going crazy. And so there are processes in place to sort of try to tamp things down, obviously not effective in all scenarios, Um, as well as interferon gamma. Within four hours, all these things are rising. Finally, after the first sort of doses of hydrocortisone and methylprednisone, the patient, you know, those, those inflammatory cytokines do come down. Those are effective steroids and they hit them with very high levels. But, you know, the, the sort of the, the damage and the, the, the non-biomarker related things have been done. So, so what actually happened? This was a huge deal. This was all over the news. Um, you know, fortunately, no one died, but there's significant morbidity associated with this event. Six patients all in this trial, otherwise healthy. I mean, it's a big deal. Um, so there's a big investigative report that we'll talk about that occurred um, with the, the UK's sort of equivalent of the FDA from as far as I can tell. But on top of that, some sort of basic science work was going on in the background or translational work to sort of figure out what went wrong. And in 2010, it was finally determined what happened. So the investigators had, you know, they had done pretty much everything everyone else does, bringing a new drug to market. Extensive modeling, you know, in vitro experiments showing the effects on cells, in vivo experiments uh, with small animals like mice, showing both it's effective in a disease model, showing that it's tolerated by the mice. Um, and then, of course, sort of the last step before you get to phase one is generally you do a large animal, and that's usually like a macaque, because that's macaques, sometimes chimps, because that's sort of close to, you know, air quotes, humans. And so someone did a more, uh, I, I believe, I don't remember if it was the same group or a different group, but did an extens- more extensive analysis of the macaque data um, and also, you know, generated new data with these animal models and found that one of the problems was that macaques do not express CD28 on a particular subpopulation of CD4s. So the target for this antibody is not present on monkey cells that were used to say, how much can we give to someone to see if it's safe? So it in this instance, it wasn't an appropriate model. How you know that in advance? I mean, that's the thing. So, so you know, when they when this report comes out, the Duff report, which is a report from the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, which is like the Hogwarts version of the like FDA, they they kind of they address that like this is a, this is a challenge. Like one, there is phase one trials are still trials. There is inherent risk, and you can never get rid of that. You know, that's that's. That's why we do them. We don't just go straight to the the sickest patients because you, you know, God forbid something does go wrong. You want to at least have it happen in a healthy person with reserve um, at a low dose so you can, you know, avert it. And ultimately what the Duff report comes up with is sort of two major conclusions. The first one is, well, let's let's try this. So Dr. Peck, you have a brand new wonder drug. It is... It is a, it, it fixes the number. The problem with kidneys is that the creatinine is too high. You give this pill and the creatinine comes down. Don't worry about anything else. Just it fixes the number, right? You're going to bring this to trial. You've done all the animal models. You now have six healthy volunteers. It's a, it's an IV drug. You're going to infuse it. Are you going to do all six of the patients at the same time on the first day? I'm a very busy man. I've got a lot of shit to do. I need to get this done with. Let's, let's just pump them all and get out. Yeah. So that was kind of the big 
thing was one in the protocol it was supposed to i believe it was supposed to be a little more spread out but i think it was actually still appropriate there you know it was to treating them all on the same day was was initially the plan and that was sort of approved by whatever regulatory boards were overseeing this the big sort of one of the big points of the duff report is yeah don't do that <laughs> spread it out spread it out one person first i think even if they had like uh followed the uh, what was the two hour uh yeah i believe it's protocol hours. that would have been enough time to yeah. first notice the patient one was already developing pretty severe symptoms he he had this terrible migraine within the first 50 minutes that he he never had migraines before he had awful low back pain that he never had before if i was patient number two and two hours had passed by, and I saw patient number one starting huffing and panting and ripping his shirt off, that would give me pause. I, I would probably say, hey, wait a minute. Let's, let's wait a little bit longer. Let's see what happens here. Right. Especially in this setting where, you know, the patients are in the clinic and diffusion over X amount of time. This is, you know, we even are, they're careful. You remember with the early coronavirus um, vaccine trials, we had like the transverse myelitis cases and stuff where people got the vaccine and then kind of went home. And then we're fine for a while and then had an event. And that was considered, you know, there was, you know, uh, I think the first, I think with the, I don't know, it was maybe AstraZeneca, I don't recall, who had the first uh, transverse myelitis case. And then, um, you know, the first one went, they continued to trial. And then when they had the second one, they paused. Yeah. Um, and then really worked it up to be sure, like, is this just people in the community get transverse myelitis or is this related to the vaccine? And so, you know, that's a setting where it's even harder to do that surveillance and they were so cautious. And so this is a setting where you're literally watching the person the whole time. And this is an immediate reaction. Um, so that was the first part. And then the second part is a, a little more nuanced. And it was kind of the idea that how do you choose the starting dose? So I had mentioned earlier that this was sort of one five hundredth of the highest dose tested in macaques that had no problem. So that sounds really, really low. The problem is that the macaques weren't a good model. And so there are a couple approaches to this, to how you decide dosing in a clinical trial. There's, there's three or four systems. And one system that the uh, Duff Reports recommends is the MABEL system, which stands for the minimum, uh, I believe, acceptable biological effect level. The idea being like, how would you do this, right? You could do this by saying, well, we gave as much to the, the monkeys as we could. And then when the monkey got sick, we went down half that. So that we could get, so we could like be like, okay, we're safe, we're out of the toxic range, but also we're going to be giving them a lot so that we like know. Versus the other way where you have some biomarker, like let's say your drug reduces creatinine and you say, I want a two point drop in creatinine. That's my minimal acceptable biological effect. So you find the dose that does that minimum amount and then that's what you start your trial at. And so there's sort of two approaches. Do you go, do you go for, right? Because it's, you want your healthy volunteers. Maybe you want to know if they can tolerate a lot and then kind of turn it down versus do you start small and keep going up because you don't want to go up on the sick patients, right? So this stuff report suggests kind of rather than just having no observed adverse effects as an acceptable level, you have to show that you're, there's a biological marker that's reaching sort of some significance so that you know if your dose is doing anything or not. So, you know, that one five hundredth of, um, of the most toxic level in macaques sounds like it should be safe in people, but Perhaps if they had had some biomarker that they look at in the macaques to show that the drug is having also its effect, they would have noticed that, oh, you know, the effector memory CD4 compartment that doesn't express CD28 isn't doing anything. And so we can't really say that this is a good comparison. And that could have avoided this. So those are kind of the two 
major conclusions of the Duff report. And, and ultimately, um, you know, uh, trials are conducted, you know, every, like I said, everyone who's done, who, who works in clinical trials now, who's run, running them or involved in running them is familiar with this case, discusses this case. And so when you're conducting your phase one trial, you know, I don't think you're ever going to see six infusions at once on the first day again. I, I think it's also worth uh, visiting some of the other animal models and tissue models that they did because uh, this is kind of like a Swiss cheese uh, uh, effect. If you if you know about, you know, doing root cause analysis, you know about the Swiss cheese model where you have all these safety barriers in place and it just so happens on rare occasion, you know, a hole in one barrier is uh, surmountable and then the next one and the next one and so on. The tissue models and the mouse models had problems with them as well that were unrelated to the problems with the macaque model. Uh, recall the macaque model did not have or did not express those CD28 uh, receptors on certain subsets of the T cell populations. That's a problem, obviously. But in the uh, mouse model, it wasn't just that uh, they, you know, they they were expressed on these subcell uh, subset of T cell populations. It's just these are caged laboratory mice that don't have long lived lives of history of diseases. They don't have this population of memory cells from prior infections ready to be activated again. And so that's not present uh, when they give this, uh, this monoclonal antibody, there's, there's nothing to activate there that could conceivably perform these cytokine storms. And then in a tissue model, I'm, I'm not too familiar with, with how, you know, tissue culture works for these, but there was something about, um, the, the, the preparation of the, the human T cells were, were not densely populated where they would have those contact, like the, the multiple points of contacts that are required for, you know, cell signal propagation and activation, they were like diluted. And so they didn't see these effects, but when they reprepped the tissue cultures to have this densely populated selection, they could reproduce this, uh, uh cytokine expression. So what you're, what you're really bringing up here is, is a point that I think is uh, really important, which is that all lab research is fake. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> No, but that's a really, I mean, that's, you're, you're poking a big hole in a lot of basic immunology research. And this is well known that, that these, uh, incredibly inbred mice that don't have, so one that there's a question about T cell receptor diversity and in incredibly inbred mice. They haven't been exposed to a history of pathogens and vaccination that generates robust memory populations. The, I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, but if you draw the blood of a person and check for memory T cells using a marker like, uh, CD5, 45 RO or something, um, and you say what proportion of T cells floating around the blood have already seen antigen and been activated versus what are naive in these mice, it's going to be much more naive. And that's going to fundamentally change the biology of how you react to something. It's the same reason that children interact differently with vaccines and immune insults than adults do because their immune systems are fundamentally composed of different populations of cells. So yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge. I got no solution. There's the other just fundamental unique problem of this particular trial, in, uh, the, the phase one aspect of it, is that this is a drug for people with autoimmune diseases. You know, this is a drug for people whose immune systems are not functioning the way they're supposed to function. And the first people that you're testing it on are people with fully intact immune systems. 
and you're going to give a super agonist to these people like that. That sounds crazy to me. I'm, I'm not an immunologist, but that, that sounds like you gotta be super careful there. So can I throw some, can I throw some shade? Yeah. There's an article in new scientists that came out a little bit after this, um, this, this, I don't want to say fiasco, but this, uh, incident, uh, uh, an immunologist contacted by new scientists who wished to be anonymous commented (laughs) that you don't need to be a rocket scientist to work out what will happen if you non-specifically activate every T cell in the body. Well, there you go. (laughs) It's a little, but it's a little pedantic, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I get it. It's, it's kind of savage and, and I, I appreciate the swagger, but you know, the, the, the early work had shown that even though you're sort of not quote non-specifically activating, there's a preference for regulatory T cells, which are going to have a dominant immunosuppressive effect in the animal models. The problem is that it didn't hold up in the human models. Would it shock you to know that Tejanero farm uh, immunotherapeutics went bankrupt or declared bankruptcy like a year after this? Not, not only would it not shock me, but one of the legal fallouts was it was revealed in the subsequent lawsuits that Tejanero did not even have the appropriate amount of insurance that would cover adverse outcomes for, for these patients. That's not great. That's pretty bad. Well, you know what we say here on Caduceus Wild? ADAB. <laughs> we can cut there. Yeah. Or we can just talk about um, Assault on Precinct 13. Oh, uh, what was your favorite part? Uh, potatoes was pretty good. <laughs> um, one character pointing out that after everyone got mad at him for trying to run away, that they then sent him out <laughs> through the sewer.